Hello and welcome to Navara FM. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny. This week, I had the pleasure of talking to academic and author Olufemi Otaiwo about his two recent works. The first title is Elite Capture, how the powerful took over identity politics and everything else. It looks at the role of the elite in society and proposes a way of reclaiming the insights of the Combahee River Collective in the face of cynical co-option and structural capture. The second, Reconsidering Reparations, calls on us to rewire the global political economy in favour of decolonial climate justice. We talked about the possibilities and pitfalls of identity politics, how we contend with the planetary challenges of the climate crisis, and what powers might lie in the way. Femi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to jump straight into your most recent title, Elite Capture. This delves into the kind of much uh, freighted, much debated topic of identity politics. It's one of those terms like uh, populism, which sort of seems to shift depending on who's talking about it and who they're levelling the charge at. So what would you define as identity politics in your work? So when I think about identity politics, I think about what I take to be what the Combe River Collective um, said in their original statement in the late 70s, which is basically the origin of the term identity politics. Um, so as I understand it, the, the point of identity politics was to answer the question, how should we get started thinking and acting politically? Right? Should it be from this kind of bird's eye view, abstract theory of what's wrong with the world or in general for everybody, for anybody, or should it be starting from someplace more personal, your particular social location, your social position, the kinds of priorities that make sense given where you are in the world. And identity politics is simply to take the second answer that's compatible with having getting started thinking about what's going on in your life or your neighborhood, then linking up with other people and working in coalition. It's compatible with all of that. The members of the Combe River Collective, in fact, did all of that. They, they were doing that when they wrote the original statement. It was in a socialist feminist um, kind of coalitional publication in the first place. Um, and that's what I take identity politics to be. So in the beginning of the book, you lay out the baby that we are trying to not chuck out with the bathwater, if you like, the skilla and the charabdus that we're trying to steer between in terms of um, how the left and you know people in general can use the tools of identity politics without collapsing into either a kind of class reductionism that runs roughshod over these very important, deeply structural material differences and also not delving into what you term deference politics. And I'd love if if you could lay out a little bit more how you relate to that problem in your work. Yeah, that's a deep problem. You know, it's one of the constantly recurring problems, at least on, you know, my corner of academia and the broader left, um, what to do about class, what to do about 
other forms of um, identity politics, you know, race, gender, so on and so forth. And the way that I try to navigate between these is actually a little more in the vein of a refusal, right? So, so one way you could look at all these is that there's a list of stuff that's important, class, race, gender, nationality, religion, ability, you know, the list goes on. Um, and the point of thinking about all these things, or at least one of the things we should get done when thinking about all these things is to get them in the right order. Um, and so I actually prefer to think of the class reductionists as kind of class first sort of people, because I don't, mm -hmm. I don't really think most of them would deny that race matters at all or that gender matters at all. They just think there's a particular sort of importance to class um, and there's a particular sort of importance to capitalism as a system. And that requires putting class first, prioritizing it over these other things. There's something in there that I agree with, which is that there's something particularly important to capitalism as a system. Um, but I don't think it makes sense or is helpful to um, think of rank ordering all of the ways that that system might show up in someone's personal experience. I would prefer to try to figure out how those things are each of the other things. Um, how all these things fit together, not in the sense of being separate things that are related to each other, but in fact, just being the same system operating in different ways. Let's talk, if we can, a little bit more about uh, what you term deference politics. I'd love if you could explain that a little bit more, I guess, that epistemic account of what goes wrong in the misuse of the tools possibly provided by a certain kind of identity politics. Deference politics is basically a way of responding to the kinds of insights that motivated identity politics, which is it's a way of responding to the importance of a person's social position to how we do politics and how they should do politics and how we should do politics with them. And that's closely related to another idea that's also motivated by the same kind of cluster of things, which is called standpoint epistemology, which is just a fancy way of saying what you know depends on who you are. Where you are in the social system is going to affect what kinds of information that you're going to get. It's going to affect what kinds of questions you ask in the first place. And that's something we should take into account when we're doing politics, when we're doing research. You know, we should pay attention to where people come from, what they've experienced, what their lives have been like, because those have ramifications for what people know and how they relate to the world. And so if you have all these things going, standpoint epistemology, identity politics, you're the kind of person who thinks people's social position matters. Right? They matter to research, they matter to politics. And if you start with that thought, which I think is just correct, right? I mm -hmm. just agree with standpoint epistemology. I'm on team identity politics. If you start from that point, there's a, there's a question about what is it that we should do specifically about that thought? How should we respond to the insight that it matters what people are like, what social position they're in. And one answer that I 
disagree with that I'm critical of is that the thing to do is to find somebody who is of the right kind of marginalized group and say, when we're doing politics about that marginalized group, um, whether it's research about them or whether it's political organizing about them, we're going to find a person who's in that group and defer to them. We're going to follow their perspective. We're going to take their political judgment as answering the question of what it is that we should do, what it is we should think, how it is that we should talk, so on and so forth. Right. And I have a lot of, I have a lot of criticisms of this, um, but I think maybe the one worth saying first is I don't think this way of living out identity politics or standpoint epistemology succeeds on its own terms. I think if we're careful about how the system that we're in actually works, one thing that we'll notice is that it's not random which people of marginalized groups we encounter. It's not random which perspectives we're in a position to defer to. Um, As I put it in the book, some people are pipelined to PhDs and other people are pipelined to prisons. And so if you're asking who you should defer to in the PhD seminar room, there's a bunch of people who are locked in cages whose perspectives aren't likely to be on the list of possible perspectives to defer to. And that's not some, you know, that's not some idiosyncrasy of rooms on campus. That is how rooms work in general. That is how human interaction works. Um, And so I, I, you know, there's a lot that I don't like about deference politics, but even if I shared the same the exact same way of thinking about the underlying ideas, I still think we would want something different and better than deference politics. Those questions are kind of structural failures as soon as they're asked because of the kind of answers that they cannot provide by virtue of the social settings in which they're being levied. And I think that's uh, something I was fascinated about in your work when you talk about what trauma can't teach us and what um, epistemic insights we can't glean from a position of trauma if the point, as you write, is to change the world. Yeah, I think that's the second major problem that I have with deference politics. And, you know, beyond the question of how we should relate to different knowledge claims or social positions or all this lofty stuff, It's just the thing that I find most alienating about the kind of political culture that's developed around trauma and the role of trauma and the role of particular kinds of negative experiences in politics. Um, So we just were talking about the difference that the system makes in terms of whose perspectives that we get access to. Um, But even if we got access to all of the people who have gone through and are going through incredibly traumatic things, whether it's being caged in the carceral system, whether it's surviving different kinds of violence, we will find a range of answers, right? People respond to these experiences in very different ways. Some people come out of these experiences with a perspective that is more empathetic than the one they had before, some less, some 
somewhere in the middle. Some people come out thinking more structurally than they had before, and some people less, um, or some people just differently. Um, there will be all of these groups of people, like any other group of people, have a range of political ideas and knowledges, and not all of them are moving in the direction that we should move politically. Trauma is not a good teacher. Pain is not a good teacher. At the end of it, what deference politics does by constantly asking us to find the person who is the right kind of representative of this or that kind of experience or this or that kind of social position is it changes the subject. Because at the end of the day, we're not actually trying to answer the question, what is it like to experience this sort of violence? Or what is it like to experience this sort of oppression? We're trying to end the violence and oppression. And the questions that we have to ask to do that certainly are going to involve figuring out what it's like to experience those things and listening to people who have experienced those things. But it's going to involve a host of other questions that we don't get much closer to answering, if you ask me, by using the politics of deference. Rolling back a little bit to the Combahee River Collective, um, as you say, formed uh, through socialist movements. What do you think the radical potentials are of this kind of identity politics, if sort of used properly, I guess. <laughs> it's, a, it's a strange way of putting it. In the statement, they more or less say this. They're like, if we think rigorously about what it would take to change the world for people like us, queer black women, that would actually take a fundamental restructuring of how the world works. And if we look at the fundamental structure of the world, we will find this thing called capitalism. And if we look at the kinds of changes to the world that will be compatible with the flourishing of the sort of people, you know, the sort of class of people who were created to be maximally exploited by the system, um, if we look seriously about what kinds of changes would actually make the world better rather than worse, uh, we won't find feudalism. (laughs) Or, you know, any of the worst, worst things that preceded capitalism, we will find something better. And for them, that was socialism. For me, that's socialism. And I think that is within the radical potential of identity politics. You know, you can take identity politics in a lot of directions. Um, A lot of people prefer, you know, various kinds of nationalisms. Um, But I... But I think if you're serious about not just what you dislike about the world, but in fact, why it happens, what it what the forces are that produce that outcome and continually reproduce that outcome, I think you will inevitably find capital as the thing that explains how the world is structured. And that's a thing we have to contend with to make the world better. So we've laid out what identity politics can do, what identity politics could do. But of course, as the title of your book lays out, that's not necessarily what's happening. You talk in very compelling ways about instances that 
are comical because they have to be and gut-wrenching because how could they be anything else about this the way in which the CIA shell mega corporations have uh, scrimmaged little bits and clues off the top of social movements and used it to sort of whitewash their own reputation so I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit more about that process of capture sort of how it works what it looks like one of the things I wanted to make sure to acknowledge in the book is the cynical, purposeful, you know, conspiracy, for lack of a better term, but, you know, deliberate action by people who have power and resources to respond to movements for justice in self-serving ways. Right? I think when people hear the phrase elite capture, that is what they immediately think of. And they're not wrong to think about that. That is the thing that very much happens. It is a weighty political phenomenon. There are a bunch of examples. You know, I, I talked about the mayor of DC where I live painting Black Lives Matter on the plaza before, you know, extending the police budget. I talked about the CIA, which you referenced, right? Making these ads about people who are proud people of color, but also members of the CIA, right? Um, so we could call that co-optation and it is certainly a version of elite capture. Um, but what I wanted to get out of elite capture as an idea, you know, this idea that comes from social science that people have studied, is that actually a lot of people that aren't the very most powerful institutions in the world are also doing a version of that. Sometimes on purpose, you know, a, just a different version of the co-optation narrative, but sometimes not. And it's not because we have these supervillains in the world that we have elite capture. It's, if anything, the other way around. It is the same features of how our social system works in general that allows people to be supervillains that also explains elite capture as a phenomenon. What elite capture is, for me, is essentially a kind of practical inequality. The version of inequality that we know and use most often is just measuring resources. So inequality is when the, one, the top 1% have a bunch more wealth than the bottom 99%. If the top 1% of a country has... 10% of the wealth in land, then that's one level of inequality. If the top 1% has 50% of the land and wealth of a society, that's a higher level of inequality, right? So we understand that even though two societies can both be unequal, and maybe even all societies will be to some degree unequal, that the level of inequality measured in resources is something that's important and politically meaningful and tells us about how society is working. All I'm doing is noticing that social science, scientists have applied that same insight to not just having stuff, but, but doing stuff, right? How is it that social processes like the provision of international aid, like the disagreement and debate and contest about the political direction of a social movement, how is it that those actions or processes respond to inequality. 
one thing that they find is that the people who have certain kinds of advantages, advantages of wealth or uh, military power or other sorts of social, um, other sorts of social positional advantages, hierarchical advantages, they often end up in control of these processes, or they often end up benefiting disproportionately from these processes, whether we're talking about, again, the provision of international aid, whether we're talking about debating what it is that the legislature should be fixing or ignoring, um, or whether we're talking about how industries are regulated, all these processes that are about what our society and institutions are doing are sensitive to the same kind of inequalities that wealth and land allotments are. When you talk about this process of capture and who are the elites that are undertaking it, purposefully or not, you very understandably uh, want to avoid a conspiratorial framing of what an elite is, right? Because not only is it does it allied a lot of structural processes that don't need someone kind of cackling a, a bunch of levers in order to explain it, but it often dovetails into sort of conspiratorial anti-Semitism and uh, that uh, inspires a load of other kind of forms of racism that we all know very, very well, uh, you know, in this particular political conjuncture. But what is it that makes an elite, an elite, like what is it that makes someone with, say, social privilege in a university lecture hall, what do they have in common with a CIA recruiter, for instance, that makes the that makes them part of this kind of elite that's capable of do, doing this kind of process of capture, if you see what I mean? Yeah, this is a really important question. This set of questions is why I was so insistent on using the term elite rather than terms that are more familiar on the left, like, you know, bourgeois or something like that, or, or, or comprador in, you know, um, other circles, right? And what I'm after is this. Elite isn't a class. It's not even a subclass. It's not an identity. It's not a particular absolute position that someone has. With respect to the internal hierarchy of Georgetown professors, I am quite <laughs> junior, right? right? You know, there are people who have been here longer than I am and, you know, and to know where the institutional bodies are buried and have more research funding, whatever, <laughs> right? Um, so in that set of people, I don't think I would come out as an elite, in terms of black people worldwide, not only am I an elite, I'm, a, I'm essentially a one percenter in this in global black politics. Right? <laughs> my passport, my income, my economic security, my access to health care, all orders of magnitude above what most black people in the world have access to. If you want to know whether I'm an elite... You should just say which of those comparisons you're making. Because what elite is, is a comparison. It is a position of relative advantage. So, yes, there are a handful of people who are probably going to be on the advantage end of any kind of comparison that you could make. right? The Jeff Bezoses and Elon Musks and other arch capitalists are going to be elites in that sense, perhaps. Um, but most of us are somewhere in the middle. 
And one of the things I was criticizing about deference politics is you have a bunch of people who really aren't elites in terms of who they're comparing themselves to, but are elites with respect to the larger kind of marginalized movements or marginalized groups of people whose politics they're participating in. Bringing back the Ivy Tower seminar room, (laughs) right? The... (laughs) junior professor like me who sits in that room and feels put upon and discriminated against and is relative to their colleagues is nevertheless in this elite position with respect to say black politics that's that's the point i'm trying to make so what does that grant us in terms of conceptual apparatus for figuring out what the hell is going on in the world by um, creating a category which, you know, theoretically includes sort of yourself, this more senior Georgetown professor and Jeff Bezos, right? What does that allow us to see in comparison to perhaps a, a, a different tool like talking about the bourgeoisie or capital owners or however you want to phrase it? I think one of the things I hope it allows us to see is why, you know, just one more reason why representation politics is probably not our ticket out of the problems that we're responding to. Mm -hmm. Um, Because to, again, bring back up deference politics, you know, one thing you might do sitting in these fancy rooms, the, the um, legislatures, the Ivy League seminar rooms to say, well, if we want to make progress on inclusion of marginalized perspectives, we should look around here and see which people represent the marginalized perspectives. And hopefully what, what we've just been talking about is one way of saying why this is just kicking the problem down the road, because um, there are, if anything, larger differences between myself and the globally average black person than between myself and the white junior professor at Georgetown, right? Uh, Measurably larger differences. (laughs) But more importantly, um, I think we can keep in mind the other sort of criticism of deference politics the criticism that deference politics changes the subject. Because actually, if we're studying race and destroying racism, if we're studying destroying the patriarchy, if we're studying destroying ableism, we we aren't talking about, we aren't studying things that can be solved at the level of changing the discussion of the seminar room any which way, right? We're, we're studying something that's going to involve literally building the world differently, you know, using the example of um, disability, right? Where are the stairs and where are the ramps in the actual material physical world? Mm -hmm. That is the measure of progress for a particular kind of accommodation. And there are many other kinds of accommodation that we would have to think of, right? But that just isn't about whose perspective is being listened to in the room, except insofar as it contributes to changing the material structures. Um, So that's what I'm hoping to show 
by talking about elite in this kind of flexible way. Mm. I'd love to learn a little bit more about the, the mechanism of capture, if you like, because uh, you talk about a lot of uh, different social institutions from you know governments education systems uh, social networks that kind of thing and from one perspective uh, you can see a sort of an underlying neutrality of that tool could be presumed in as to be necessary for elite capture right there needs to be something prior to that that was not captured by elites in order for it to be captured if you see what i mean for instance the supreme court can that be captured by the elites or is it all, always already a tool of elite capture, for instance? So are there sort of situations in which, you know, elite capture can't happen because it's already so totally effective? What do you think? Yeah, there, there are certainly situations where, you know, elites have already captured everything. Um, but I would expect those to be fewer far between. Um, but I think one of the things that's helpful about the sort of analogy with resource inequality is that it helps us challenge this perspective where, you know, what we're trying to say with elite capture is whether an institution is good or bad in a kind of, you know, in a kind of, um, categorical sense, right? It's not as though... Elite capture is some sort of on or off switch where either the Supreme Court is a legislative engine of the people or it is a tool of the bourgeoisie, right? Um, we should think about elite capture and practical inequality the way that we think about resource inequality, right? If the top 1% owns 50% of a society's land and wealth, then that is a grossly unequal society. And we could say this society is unequal. If we were to ask the question, could this society get more skewed to, towards the elite? We could answer yes, obviously, right? They now have 50% of the land and wealth. They could have 51%, right? They could have 60%. They could have 70%. Those are real options. Um, and the difference is, isn't that some of those are egalitarian societies and some of those aren't. The differences are in the levels or the extent of elite capture in a very straightforward kind of countable way. And I think there's a version of that that we could, you know, evaluate in the less countable but no less significant version of the political agenda of a social movement, right? Um, if we are dealing with a marginalized group and they have a range of social problems, which are the problems that are being addressed by the social movements and the various institutions that have risen up to respond to those? Are they the problems that most resemble the priorities of the elites of that group? or the problems that would be highest up on the priority list of the people in the middle of that group, or are they the priorities that would be highest up on the priority list of the people at the bottom of that group? And, you know, that's a less straightforward question to answer than the what percent of land do the one percenters own, um, but it's no less 
a thing that we could investigate and try to get to the bottom of. This makes me wonder, it's about your kind of, uh, your analysis of your relationship to things like the institutions of the state per se. Um, If you think that if they've been captured by an elite that they can be recaptured, right? Is there that sort of um, underlying neutrality that we can work towards recapturing or is it something that needs to be sort of dismantled wholesale? I'm thinking here about um, the way in which you write like laws are increasingly written by the powerful and on one level, you couldn't agree more, right? Um, but on another, for instance, the, the anarchist re- retort to that would be that a law is always made by the powerful. A law is a product of inequality. And so it can't be captured by an elite it, because that's it's sort of that's not a coherent process that can be applied to the process of making a law. Might be drifting into some weeds of of spurious ontology here, but I hope <laughs> my no, I question is vague. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, now we're now we're really cooking philosophy wise. Um, <laughs> I definitely think the anarchists are onto something here, and I think what they're pointing out is right that it would be silly to look at the situation we were talking about before, where we're comparing a version of the world where the 1% owns 50% of society's wealth and land versus one where they own 80% of society's wealth and land. It would be absurd to look at that situation and ask, you know, which of those is egalitarian or which of those doesn't demonstrate unjustified elite advantage. You could coherently ask, which of those should we prefer, right? Which of those societies would be easier to organize in? Which of those societies were, would we be likely to win in the struggle to create a genuinely egalitarian society which would resemble neither of those? That's a question that we have to answer. And the process of making the world into an egalitarian world, starting from those very inegalitarian worlds, is not going to be one that we get to by letting society run on autopilot. Are you a sort of more on the cynical side versus the utopian side when it comes to fixing this problem? Because if you talk about it as something that's not on or off, but always kind of on a sliding scale, apart from in conditions of sort of absolute equality, um, it seems like elite capture is something that's going to stick around with us from your analysis. Because even if you have material equality, you could assume that there would still human life would still exist right there might be sort of various forms of social privilege that would last even in a sort of communist utopia right yeah i think that's a helpful question because there's been a lot of questions like that that i think come from the natural place of well clearly i don't like elite capture right i wrote a whole book about why (laughs) It's happening and it's a problem and so on and so forth. Um, But it's difficult to imagine a world working without elite capture. I think what it occurs to me to say to that is that elite capture isn't actually the problem. Elite capture is a symptom of the things that are the problem. 
um, which is the particular way that we've built this world. We don't dislike this world because it is true in some abstract, probabilistic, mathematical sense that if you try to do something, you'll be more successful than me. We, we dislike this world because sea levels are destroying whole communities. We dislike this world because everybody has to give up ungodly hours of their day to this God capital. We dislike this world because people are locked in cages. And whether or not we create a world where everyone has the exact same level of resources or power, we can create a world that responds to those things. So elite capture isn't the thing that we're trying to destroy. You know, the thing that we're trying to destroy is capitalism. Where does your work stand in terms of uh, movements towards abolition of the police, of prisons, of uh, these of powerful social political institutions? What I'm guess I'm getting at is, are there things which we should not be attempting to to recapture? And like, where does the uh, the the framework that elite capture gives us stand in in these debates there are definitely things that we should not be trying to capture and i would i would certainly i would certainly put cages on the list Um, but one of the things that i have been most struck by in reading things that abolitionists have said um is one thing that Ruth Wilson Gilmore says a lot, which is that abolition is a presence. And I take it that the idea is when you build the kinds of social systems that don't throw people in a meat grinder for their formative years, respond to them punitively for the very socialization that asked of them, you might find that that's a society where you not only don't need to put people in cages, but where the thought might not even occur to you in the first place. And the kind of practical question for me is, well, how do we build one of those? How do we, how do we get that society? How do we get that trajectory of a person's life from infancy to being an elder. What I go for in the end of the book um, is what I call the constructive view or constructive politics. Um, And all I'm saying is just that that's the question, right? Elite capture deference politics, they all try to change the question. Elite capture changes the question from what do we need to, you know, what does Jeff Bezos need? Deference (laughs) politics changes from the the question from how is it that we manage the social consequence of pipelining a bunch of people to prisons and pipelining a bunch of them to PhDs? It asks, how do we change these conversations in a way that less reflects the brutality of the society those conversations are happening in? And none of those are the question. Not a single one of those is the question. The question is, how do we make a society that doesn't suck? (laughs) 
in the effort to make a society that doesn't suck, I would like to turn to your other work, reconsidering reparations. Um, talked, of course, about the rising oceans and the conditions of like complete degradation that you know millions and millions of people are already living in. Right, this is not some speculative future. This is a current crisis that we're living through. I'm wondering if you could talk to me a little bit about the the re in that reconsidering, <laughs> like what kind of uh, formulation of reparations are you, is your work critiquing? So there are criticisms of other views of reparations, particularly views of reparations that are, to my mind, overly focused on symbolic amend making rather than actually remaking the material structures that racial domination depends on and consists of right um so that's a theme that applies to both books i think but the re and reconsidering reparations is actually less about criticizing other views of reparations and it's more about the need to update them. And I don't mean update in terms of keep pace with trends in intellectual thought or fashion. I mean, keep up with the actual state of the world. There's been a long, centuries-long history of fight for racial justice and racial justice that also takes into account the history of death and destruction in the world. That is a long tradition that we should continue. We have every reason to continue. But that long tradition is meeting conditions that it didn't meet in the 19th century. Unlike the people who were fighting for racial justice in the 1800s, we are dealing with total ecological collapse. Unlike the people who were fighting for reparations in the early 1900s, we have the science to know that the Industrial Revolution that they were living through is putting us on a course for the glaciers melting and the sea level rising and widespread crop failures and mega droughts like the ones that we're experiencing right now in the American West for just one example, for floods that we're experiencing right now in Pakistan, right? For crop failures we're experiencing right now in East Africa. And the other side of saying that reparations isn't about a symbolic reconstruction of the world where people say sorry and people give up their bigotry is saying that Racial justice is about a material reconstruction of the world where we change how wealth is produced and how pollution is produced and where all these things go once they're produced. And the stakes of that and the direction of that have to contend with the conditions we're in now. You frame reparations' most kind of urgent edge at this particular moment in time as uh, a response to the climate crisis. And that is deeply linked, of course, to uh, colonialism and racial capitalism's role in 
getting us to this state of disaster in the first place. So could you talk me through uh, that connection between climate change and these these historical processes that we might be trying to repair? It all starts in 13th century Ming China. Um, <laughs> it actually does, is the thing. No, like, no. <laughs> like, for real. <laughs> yeah. but, like, with me. We have a lot of ground to cover. Um, here's the short version. Basically, we have a world system. Right? We have a literally planet-sized system of economic production, and political relationships. That is something that we have not always had. And as far as we know in human history, it happened for the first time in the 16th century, in the late 1500s. Why that happened was colonialism. Mm. Right? It was in the late 16th century that all of the world's oceans were connected by systems of trade and finance. And the things doing the connections were colonial conquests. What built planetary scale trade was imperial conquest. And on top of that imperial conquest and the planetary scale production that was made possible by the construction of trade links that were this large was something that was called the Industrial Revolution. People argued endlessly about when it started, and say late 18th century or perhaps 19th century. But by 1900, you have not only a planetary-sized system of trade and politics, which we had had for some centuries, but you have a particular economic transformation made possible by that scale of traded politics. And that transformation was in turn made possible by an energy revolution. The early industrial innovations in steam and coal and the later oil. Um, but these large increases to the energy output of industrial processes also meant large increases in anthropogenic carbon emissions, which eventually turned into the situation that we have now, which is climate change. What kind of reparatory responses do you think are necessary to deal with the, the scale of the problem that you're outlining? What our system is, is a system of production and distribution. That is what capitalism is. And the flow of capital decides what things are going to be produced and where they're going to go after. That, of course, and centrally includes actual stuff, commodities, right? things that we buy and sell. They also include services, actions that we perform for other people, but they also include lots of other things that relate strongly to the flow of capital. Where the research universities and labs are also related. 
where the pollution is and where it goes, also related. The outcome of all of these flows of capital and labor and information and pollution are the material conditions of our lives. And we have constructed the world, or I shouldn't say we have constructed the world. The world has been constructed <laughs> in such a way that there are patterns of those flows. The richer countries and the more advantaged people within and across those countries tend to get more than their fair share of the stuff and the good information and the legal protections. And the people at the bottom of the hierarchies, the people in the poorest countries, the people lowest on the racial hierarchy, tend to get more than their fair share of the bad things, the pollution, the incarceration, the poverty. What I'm talking about, what reparations is in my head, for whatever that's worth, <laughs> is a historically informed redistribution of all of the above. Right? We know, because we are in a capitalist system, that if we redistribute capital, there is at least the possibility of redistributing everything else apace with it. Um, but we can put our thumb on some of those other scales. We can create research labs where there haven't been. We can try to remediate pollution. We can try to reforest places that have been destroyed by industrial agriculture, redistribution on a global scale, um, particularly but not exclusively of wealth, is what is going to be required if we want to remake the world in the direction of justice. What are the place of the, the state and the, sort of the disparate levers of, of state power in, in doling out the sort of the the cold hard cash it would take to undertake these reparatory processes to steer these reparatory processes in you know the right direction because as we've been talking about the the institutions that we that would be responsible for reparations are themselves beholden to endemic levels of elite capture what are the kind of institutions that we might need to build in order to <laughs> prevent elite capture, what the institutions that are necessary for injecting democracy into these processes. States have an important role in the kind of redistribution I'm talking about uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, one, they're often amongst the largest holders of debt, and so they're um, in a position to change what's possible in other parts of the world by essentially fiat. They themselves are large repositories of the money that comes from the work that you and I and everyone else does. And so just by the fact that they control so much resources, their behavior is relevant I think we should be able to say all that without deluding ourselves into thinking that states, whether in the global north or global south, are entities that are unproblematic or that aren't violent and oppressive, et cetera, et cetera. 
in particular, the problem of corruption is one that comes up in the global south. Um, I think that's a reason that we shouldn't make all of the redistribution um, transfers to states. There can also be unconditional cash transfers to people. That is the most popular version of thinking about reparations in the first place, um, especially in the United States, which is where I'm based. Mm -hmm. I think there's a wisdom to that. We shouldn't give government all the cards. Um, but I do think that there is certainly a role for the state just as a primary arm of redistribution in all the ways just outlined. Cash transfers to other states, maybe cash transfers to people, at the very least debt cancellation. But the most important role for the state might be as a kind of lever or check on capital, in particular, fossil capital. They certainly aren't the institutions that are most willing to challenge capital in the guise of fossil capital or agricultural capital or any other kind, um, but they are certainly the institutions that are at least nominally public and nominally responsible for the well-being of people that don't have massive stock portfolios. And they're among the institutions that would be most likely to succeed if even a fraction of the state made it its business to keep capital from taking everything and destroying the planet while they're at it. And so the use of taxation and if nothing else, tax monitoring, so we can see where the flows of capital are going, both licit and illicit flows of capital, um, is I think a sort of underestimated um, version of a role that states could play in reparations and climate crisis. And what is the role then of, for instance, uh, union organizing and collective ownership in, in uh, rebalancing that, that power equilibrium that you're talking about, that, that kind of mass planetary scale of reparations? Because I'm wondering how that kind of figures into your notion of, of what an elite is like what what is the opposite of of the elite that could be the sort of the the mode of deliverance if it's not the kind of the the worker as opposed to the bourgeoisie um it's the elite as opposed to the question mark <laughs> the collective like what, what, what are we working with here <laughs> so definitely unions are at the center of any kind of politics that has any sort of hope for the future workers unions in particular are tried and battle-tested engines of social progress. They are some of the only kinds of organizations that have ever been even moderately successful in stemming back the insatiable drive of the capitalists of the world to own everything and in the process destroy everything. So absolutely a labor movement on a planetary scale is going to be necessary. I think that there are other organizations that can fill out a sort of popular ecology of social movements and that um, we have seen fill out 
popular ecologies of social movements. Some of these are old, like tenants unions and radical tenant activism of various other kinds. Right? That's another kind of being a non-elite that we can organize around. Nowadays, folks talk about debtors unions, um, don't pay UKs, one version of what this can look like. You know, ratepayers strikes are also organizations built out of people who are non-elites with respect to energy companies and challenging what energy companies are doing. The more of these, the merrier, I think. Each of these kinds of formations, all things being equals, seem to me to be the kind of thing that make the others likelier to win, um, especially if we build each of them with a view to building a sort of movement of movements rather than fighting each other for territory or for centrality in conversations. But I do think it will be organizations of that kind that can put the sort of pressure on states to make them more than nominally public institutions and can put the kind of pressure on capital to get them to make concessions. How would you propose that the kind of epistemic framework, the, the sort of epistemic rewiring of, of how we might sort of broker difference, do that very deeply political work of brokering difference, how does that help us uh, in building those tools for collective action? What we're talking about at the end of the day, when we're talking about tools of bridging across difference and learning to think and talk and move with people who have different backgrounds and different struggles, I think is just one of the most well-worn topics, which is we're talking about building solidarity. And solidarity is a different way of thinking and acting than philanthropy. Viewing ourselves as totally separate from other people and their struggles and reaching out a hand of charity from our position of safety. Um, but we're recognizing that even though what you're working on might not be the immediate thing in front of me, we are actually in it together. And if we look at the world uh, with a sufficient scale and sufficient understanding of the way that your problems relate to my problems, solidarity does have a moral valence to it. I think there is something ethically important about solidarity, but what's just as important about solidarity, or maybe more important, is that solidarity is self-defense. And that's what we get out of building the tools to work across difference. We are building the kind of movement, we're building the kinds of connections that are going to be better at self-defense than ones where we cleave ourselves off from each other and think we're going to have better results in a more cohesive but smaller army. I actually don't think that's how that's going to go. And on that note, I think that is probably all that we have time for. Femi, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navarro Media from just £1 a month. 
A regular donation helps us to plan our future and be even more ambitious with our coverage of news, politics, culture, and the really big ideas that you'll always find on our podcasts. So please consider joining us and become a regular supporter from just £1 a month by heading to navaramedia.com forward slash support.